Cairo, Seattle. We have to think really long and hard about things that are truly essential because literally lives are at stake. What's happening right now in some of these states that have reopened without taking proper precautions to limit community transmission, we are seeing the unfortunate consequences of those decisions. This is COVID-19 Seattle. I'm Dave Ross. And I'm Aaron Granillo. The United States is reopening from a three-month lockdown to prevent the spread of the coronavirus. And a big question looms now, is it safe to go out yet? Without clear direction from the federal government, states have been allowed to decide exactly when and how they'll reopen all on their own. And Americans everywhere have to ask themselves that same question individually. Am I going to eat inside a restaurant just because I can? Will I wait to visit an elderly relative? Here in Washington, different counties are moving slowly through Governor Inslee's phased reopening plan. But states have taken all sorts of approaches, and at least six are now reporting record increases in new coronavirus cases this week. The University of Washington also updated their death toll estimates. They now project that 200,000 Americans will have died of coronavirus by October 1st. Arizona is among the states seeing record highs in terms of new cases. It reported its largest 24-hour increase on Friday with more than 3,200 cases. I spoke with Melissa Sivany. She is a science reporter for KNAU based in Flagstaff, Arizona. And I asked her if leaders there are suggesting at all that Arizona's reopening last month is driving the spike. I think that's a question we're hearing from um, the community quite a bit, um, wondering whether uh, we need to to go back to more closures or shutdowns. Um, Statewide, there's not talk of doing that at at this point, although um, specifically on the Navajo Nation, which is really a hot spot for these cases, they have reinstated weekend lockdowns this weekend, and they continue to do daily nighttime curfews there. Well, let's discuss hospitals, because here in Washington, we never even really came close to surge capacity here. Uh, But even so, our state postponed elective surgeries and other kinds of medical services to preserve, you know, PPE and other resources. Anything similar happening there in Arizona? Um, yes. So uh, Arizona did have uh, um, elective surgeries were, were off for quite a while. Um, and of course, that creates problems with hospitals, which rely on those elective surgeries for their financing. So um, they were reopened again in response to that sort of financial issues that hospitals were facing. Right now, our hospital ICU beds um, in the state are around 80% of capacity. So we're sort of reaching that point where we're, we're asking that question, do we have that capacity to, um, to deal with this surge? We're seeing rising numbers, not just with cases, but also with the number of ICU beds that are in use, um, the number of ventilators that are in use, the number of intubation procedures that are that are happening. And I think, you know, going back to the geography of where these cases are occurring, we're seeing a lot of them in those concentrated population areas, but those areas also have more hospitals and more healthcare workers. So it's really concerning to see the cases rise in places like the Navajo and the Hopi Nation, which have long distances between hospitals and just really less capacity to deal with this kind of crisis. But as we're seeing our ICU bed capacity um, kind of reach that that alarming level in the state, there is talk of the governor issuing an, an order to end elective surgeries again um, and kind of open up more beds in the hospital. Again, it's it's not necessarily a perfect solution because those, the hospitals do rely on those elective surgeries for their finances. And so it does create an economic issue for that to happen. 
I know very early on there was this hope that the virus would just sort of fade away once the summer hit. Once Arizona got into triple digits, the cases would drop, just like the flu, right? So what are people's reactions now that it appears that this virus doesn't care about the heat? Yeah, I think we were all hopeful, right, that the summer would bring a, a diminished number of cases. Um, and that's, you know, kind of what we see the pattern with, with the flu. Um but again, this is this is a brand new disease, and we you know we really actually didn't know how the disease would behave in in response to the weather. And so I think you're right that at least here in Arizona, we have not seen any kind of um, diminished diminished effect um, on the disease from the hot weather, um, at least judging by our, our rising case numbers. Um, and there could be a lot of different reasons for that. So yeah, it's it's unfortunate. I think we were all hoping for a nice breath this summer where we could kind of you know get back outside again and see some of our family again and. And so far, that hasn't really happened. Let me ask you about your observations of the business community, because, you know, across the country, some are shutting down as workers and customers start testing positive for the virus. Any local shops taking it upon themselves to close and perhaps, you know, asking themselves, did we reopen too soon? Um, I think the community is certainly having those kinds of conversations. Yeah, I mean, that question has been asked. We opened up again on, uh, you know, the middle of May, and really our situation now, just looking at case numbers, is, is worse than it was then. And so people are certainly asking those questions. You know, at the same time, the other side of it, we're, you know, we've been seeing this this huge effect, you know, here in Flagstaff on our local businesses. Um, so many of those business owners really are struggling to get through this crisis. Uh, we, we don't want to see those businesses shut down, but there are businesses that are shutting down completely because of because of this and nobody wants that either um so i think that conversation is a is one we're having and it's a really difficult one to have melissa sivity she is a science reporter based in flagstaff arizona for knau thanks so much for the time appreciate it thanks aaron as Melissa Simony mentioned there, Arizona Governor Doug Ducey attributes the rise in cases in his state to increased testing, and he is not the only one saying this. Vice President Mike Pence encouraged governors on a call this week to adopt the president's stance that this rise in testing is the reason behind new coronavirus outbreaks in several of the states that reopened more quickly. Here is what President Trump said just a few days ago. That's probably the downside of having good testing is you find a lot of cases that other countries who don't even test don't have. If you don't test, you don't have any cases. If we stop testing right now, we'd have very few cases, if any. Dave, can you explain to us uh, why public health officials call that explanation a bit misleading? Well, <laughs> this is this is if a tree falls in the forest, but no one's there to hear it, does it fall? If you don't test, you don't know and you don't report. So if, for example, I catch the virus and it's just in the form of a sinus infection and I don't feel so bad and I get through it, sort of like what my, my sister went through, and I don't go to a doctor, I don't get tested. Well, I had the infection. I got infected, but it's not recorded anywhere. And as you put more tests out there and make it easier for people to get them, sure, you're going to see a rise in the absolute number of people who have the virus. In the beginning, I was wondering why they didn't just do a, a statistically uh, relevant sampling, test a statistically rigorous sampling of Americans to get a feel for just how prevalent the, the virus was, sort of like you do a, a political poll, right? Mm -hmm. But that was never done. So we don't have any, any baseline to know what the general infection rate is. And so, yeah, a lot of these numbers are, are squishy. Of course, the number of positives is going to go up as the testing spreads. 
does that mean that the virus is getting worse or that it was there all the time and we just didn't detect it? Right. Here's what Dr. Angela Rasmussen from Columbia University had to tell us. She is a virologist, and she says that these politicians claiming that cases are on the rise because of increased testing, well, like you said, Dave, are, uh, it's just simply wrong. Well, it is true that um, sometimes when you have increased testing, you are able to detect more cases. But in this case, we are seeing some incredibly steep upward trajectories that can't be explained by just the increased testing. Because when you increase testing, you're also increasing the number of negative cases that you are detecting. So it's not as though every single new test that you were doing that you weren't doing before is going to turn out to be positive. That The rise in case numbers that we're seeing in some of these states in North Carolina, South Carolina, uh, Alabama, Arkansas, Arizona, those trajectories cannot be explained by just having more tests. And we can also look at hospital capacity and the number of deaths. Those are also rising in those states. So my question, Dave, is why are governors and why is the Trump administration, why are they taking this approach? Why not just say, Yes, we are seeing more positive cases. Just be safe if you do decide to go out. I think for the Trump administration, they want to make sure that people feel good enough about the economy to go out and shop. I think that's what their agenda is at this point. I don't think the president's made any bones about it. He said the economy has to come back. And for that to happen, people have to trust that it's safe to go shopping and it's safe to uh, go out and uh, eat. Uh, To me, what's important here, just in terms of uh, uh, the humanitarian standpoint, is to make sure that we don't run short of hospital beds again. The virus is, one way or the other, going to have to run its course until there's a vaccine. And what made this such a crisis in the first place was, of course, the the first outbreak here in Washington State, but also the scenes from New York, where they just did not have the capacity to treat all the people who needed it. And so uh, the statistics at this point, I think, are beginning to to lose their meaning for people like us. We know how to protect ourselves. Mm -hmm. I think the information is out there now. What the hospitals need to know is whether they are prepared for an influx of patients, whether there is going to be an influx and whether they have the facilities to make sure they can properly treat them. We need to face some very difficult realities. Although people have been trying to put a positive spin on this, I think in part um, for political reasons as well as uh, just the the desire for this to be over. Um, We aren't really used to being in a long-term crisis situation like this. But that's really what it is. We're going to have to be making some serious decisions about what's going to give the best outcome. And by the best outcome right now, I'm talking about the the fewest number of people dying. In any situation like this, there is going to be isolation fatigue. And so I, I think what Dr. Angela Rasmussen is saying is that we have to resist this overwhelmingly tempting feeling that happy days are here again. I asked Professor Aaron Bromage, who teaches at the University of Massachusetts at Dartmouth, what he thought about the official communications from politicians throughout this pandemic. So one of my concerns with this, and you might notice from my voice, I'm not an American. Um, I'm from Australia. And so I, I can't comment on, I don't want to comment on politics in the US. But one of the things that I have found really amazing about my home country, Australia, is that Everybody, state and federal, got on board with the same message and made it as clear as possible for the population of what was needed and what the outcome would be from doing this. 
when we look in the US, I don't think that message has been as clear and as constant. You know, I, I guess I just want to know why has why do you think, Dave, the the virus and the response has become so political? Well, I think there's a suspicion on the part of Republicans that Democrats who are trying to preach caution here have another agenda, and that is to defeat President Trump. And that one way to do that is to tank the economy because he ran on that and to prevent it from holding rallies. And I think that's a suspicion that uh, a lot of Trump supporters hold here. Um, The problem with that, of course, is that you can't impose rules on a virus and the virus will do what it will do. So it may be true that part of the Democrats agenda is to uh, hurt President Trump. But at the same time, if you ignore the advice to isolate and wear the mask and all the rest, there's a good chance you will get sick and end up in a hospital. I guess we'll see if, you know, 20,000 Trump supporters this weekend in Oklahoma, you know, they're going to take they're going to be taking that risk. Um, you know, I'm not sure what we can. <laughs> we'll, we'll learn if, if the, you know, if uh, if that was a smart move or not. But right. There are ways to protect yourself in crowds. It's about uh, wearing masks. But because the president himself refuses to wear one and actually seems to think it's a sign of weakness, there may be a uh, social pressure not to wear the masks. And you're right. We'll see where that leads. So here's where I'm trying to sort of reconcile my just sort of inherent (laughs) mistrust of government in a lot of ways. I I tend to sort of question everything I hear from from politicians, right? But um, when it comes to the science and the data, it's like, why do we ever have to question that? I mean, the science proves what is working. We have certain states like Washington where we have flatten the curve. And then other states, Florida, Arizona, Texas, you know, California has seen a spike too. They do have more people. Um, but, you know, these certain states that that opened quickly, we're starting to see the repercussions of that. Right. Although it's invisible. I, I remember, I go back to the controversy over seatbelts. When I was growing up, there were no seatbelts in the car. We <laughs> Kids roamed freely in the back seat. Now uh, we have seatbelts and car seats. Everybody accepts it. But for a while there, people were saying, you can't tell me to buckle up in my own car. Hmm. That's my business. If I want to take the risk, then the state has no right to uh, protect me against my will. And I think there's some of that that still that still goes on here. Uh, there's no question but that everyone now understands the risk. We saw the pictures from New York. We probably had friends who have been infected, some of whom may have died. And yet there are people who, for whatever reason, we're seeing this in, in Yakima, just do not want to wear a mask. It's uncomfortable. Maybe it uh, threatens their manhood or womanhood. I don't know. But people consider that to be something that they should have a choice. They should be able to make that choice. And they don't like the government making it for them. And ultimately, I mean, it does come down to the the economics, too. I mean, I, I sympathize, I empathize with business owners out there who just want to get back to business. You know, they're they're trying to make a living, too. Um, and they and they see these orders come down from the governor, um, and they're then they're fed up. And I and I don't I don't blame them either. You know. Yeah. So. I think the businesses, though, from what I've heard, there I know someone who who operates a, a beauty salon, mm-hmm. and she has gone through considerable expense to make sure her customers are safe. It's not just window dressing. Uh, she she wants repeat customers. Sick people don't come back. Right. So I think uh, most businesses are are trying to make a good faith effort at making it as safe as possible 
to uh, for their customers to return. Let's remember that there is an end here. The vaccine has been developed, several versions of it, in fact, and what we're waiting for is just the testing. And once that's done, and I'm hearing reports uh, that it might be done before the end of the year, which I believe would set some sort of a record, then suddenly a lot of the anxiety goes away. So if you're looking for a reason to be optimistic, for me, that's what it is, that this is, in fact, temporary. It depends on the vaccine and, of course, the adoption of it. But uh, we should not have to live with this anxiety for the rest of our lives. Let's just try to look at this on a practical level. What does the science tell us is safe to do? Let's go back to Aaron Bromwich. We talked with him a few weeks ago. He teaches at the University of Massachusetts at Dartmouth, and he's been combing through the latest research and pulling out answers to the most simple, practical questions. The way I have approached this problem in regards to the pandemic is the more that you know about it, uh, the better armed you can be and the better decisions that you can make. And so, you know, when you're spending energy, like really worrying about things, there are things you should worry about. And then there's things that are risky, but let's not go overboard with how crazy you should be about them. The most important thing to remember is that outdoors is good. It's being inside with an infected person. That's really bad. The evidence is just building that enclosed spaces with lots of people and poor filtration lead to everything that you need for a, a cluster, you know, an outbreak to occur in that, that environment. Well, we know we can uh, eat indoors right now at a restaurant, for instance. So uh, that would be, I guess, a, a high-risk activity, yes? If the restaurant has made no changes, that would be a higher risk than sitting outdoors at a restaurant. Making indoor dining and office buildings safer that requires some serious engineering. Until a vaccine comes, it's going to be, you know, lots of little things that we do, like making sure that there's physical space between people, making sure that there's adequate filtration, quality filtration of the air, not recycled, but actually replaced air, um, you know, from the outside. Mask wearing drops down that, you know, risk when you're indoors. So there's a lot of little things that we can do that will allow us to be inside in enclosed spaces and lower our overall risk. So I'm pretty confident that we'll get there. It's just going to take some great science, some great engineering, and people just relearning the way in which we operate. Now, obviously, you can't eat your dinner with a mask on unless you buy one of those bizarre masks that opens up like a puppet mouth. Mm. So it sounds like if a restaurant has updated their air filtration system, that's your best bet. Right. And here's some more good news. Dr. Angela Rasmussen again. She tells us that despite being indoors, Getting your haircut should be safe. As long as your stylist is wearing a mask and you are wearing a mask for as much of the haircut as you can, I think that that's probably pretty safe to do. Although personally, I desperately also need to have my hair cut and colored, but I'm going to wait a little bit longer before making an appointment. I've been having my wife cut my hair. Dave, I've mm-hmm. seen your beard, by the way. Uh, what's the yeah. deal with that? Are you going to go to a barber and get that professionally trimmed? Or is that... Uh... I don't know. I don't know if it's even possible to trim it at this point. <laughs> I think 
it's gone beyond the point of barbering. Okay. All right. One thing that is clear is that these face masks really do make a difference. Head of the University of Washington's Virology Lab, Dr. Keith Jerome, explains. We know that masks reduce the amount of virus that's getting out. They don't reduce it to nothing. I mean, they're not perfect. That's that's for sure. They help a lot. And the 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 likelihood of transmission is a uh, is a kind of a math question about how much virus is being coughed out or spread, how close are you to it, how uh, how deeply are you breathing, how susceptible are you, and then at the end of all that, just a couple of coin flips to see whether you're lucky or not. And uh, so, you know, it's, it's a tough business. And so what we're always trying to do is minimize that risk, and it never gets down to zero. And I think hopefully people people are going to understand that. And, you know, that is, you know, philosophically, that is also life that is not risk free. We're trying to make it so that you can do these things with a reasonable assumption of of coming out of it healthy. And this report that we can expect another wave in September, can you give us a feel for what that would look like? Well, that's a big unknown, what's that, what that's going to be. But we all know, you don't have to be a virologist to know that September, October, November, you get into the colder seasons, people are indoors more, there's just more respiratory infections, right? You're more likely to get a cold, you're more likely to get the flu. Um, Coronaviruses typically show some seasonality like that, that there's more infections in the wintertime. You think about what happened early on uh, this year, right? We went from sort of no cases to, to a shocking number of cases really, really quickly. Um, you know, from, from very few initial cases. And if we're starting from a higher baseline as we go into those winter months, if, if we let our guard down, we could have a wave that's bigger than what we saw. Uh, that said, I think people are going to do the right thing and, and keep taking the precautions. So I hope we don't see that. But it is going to depend completely on what people do and how people keep their behaviors careful. Dave, what are you most looking forward to? What's the first activity you're going to go out and do that you haven't been doing? I'd like to go back to having nights on the town where you go out to a restaurant and go to a theater. The two highest yeah. risk activities you could <laughs> possibly do with the virus around. So I'm hoping that the restaurants successfully re-engineer and that the theaters upgrade their filtration systems and hand out masks at the door because uh, I do miss that. Yeah. For me, it's you know it's sports. I, I think I mentioned before in this podcast. I just want to go to a go to a ball game, uh, watch the Mariners at, at T-Mobile. Here's a thought that I had earlier today is, and I think these are two separate questions. Is um, I would feel comfortable going to a a baseball game if there are certain measures in place, if everybody is you know required to mask up, and perhaps there's like uh, a limited capacity there. Um, but I don't know if I'd feel safe. I'd feel comfortable, but I wouldn't feel safe. Do you see where I'm going there? <laughs> uh, I guess. You'd, okay. you'd, you'd right. be carrying a level of anxiety? Yeah, I think so. Would it so. help so, if the Mariners won more often? Nah, no, probably not, honestly. <laughs> but, and, and also, I think it depends on where I'm sitting, too, I was thinking earlier. Like, if I have a really crummy seat in the upper stands, mm-hmm. I'm not going to risk it for, you know, if I can't see the, if I can't yeah, see the, the game. Yeah, but the crummy seats in the upper stands are probably the safest one. The most Shoot, Dave, thing. you just proved it. Yep. You just flipped the script. That's true. I'm <laughs> That's gonna my go job. To, there you go. I'm going to a ball game in the in the nosebleeds. It's official. This has been COVID nineteen Seattle. Thank you to all of our guests for today's show. You can find a lot more unique science reporting from KNAU's Melissa Sivany on her websites. 
That's at melissa70.com. Also, special thanks to the G and Ursula Show, who interviewed virologist and Dr. Angela Rasmussen from Columbia University. And thanks to Dr. Aaron Bromage from the University of Massachusetts. You can listen to his full interview with Dave Ross on the Ross Files podcast that is linked in the episode description. They talk a lot more about the risks of schools reopening this fall. This podcast was produced by Laura Scott with reporting by Alec Downing. I'm Aaron Granillo.